0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I like that little video. That's pretty catchy. You just go from the very moment, the first thing he says with this great British accent is sex. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm paying attention. <laughs> we are wrapping up our series, Foundations in the Garden, today. And um, we're going to talk about sex. We've saved this talk for last, right? We, we established Genesis 2 and 3 as our foundation we took some time to define the concept of love biblically because that's the pre for almost everything that happens in our culture that's aberrant is that what will love, love makes it okay. And so we needed to define love, right? We've delved into the concept of marriage as a covenant. That's a topic that's going to serve us really well as we talk about this uh, issue today. We looked at Isaac and Rebecca as a case study. Um, w- along the way, we we just kind of referenced some of the baggage that we bring to relationships and and uh, just has resulted in, in, I don't know about you, but some really good conversations with uh, that I've had with several people. I don't know if you've had them with each other about this series and how it's affecting you and making you think about different things in your relationships. And um, also, this series has brought to me spiritual warfare because... Uh, and that should be no surprise. But when we talk about one of the chief ways that the enemy has deceived our our culture and even the church, uh, he really hates that we would take the time to kind of dispel some of the myths and get at the truth of God's design of this. And so, um, so now we come to it, right? We come to the place where we're going to talk about sex. And so uh, I would just say, maybe for my own benefit, that decorum is called for. <clears throat> and I've really struggled this week in my preparation to kind of walk the line between being really frank and honest and direct and then being, being, uh, not being overly graphic, right? There's a certain amount of candor you want to have on a topic like this. you want to be over the top. And so um, I wonder if you've ever just stopped to think about it. I've thought a lot about this the past three or four weeks. And what are the messages that we're getting every day from our culture about the topic of sex what are what are those messages coming to us in what kind of packaging, and what are they essentially saying to us? And everywhere I look, and, and it, you know, particularly today, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and and um, it used to be a kind of fun thing for us as a family to watch the halftime show because all these really great commercials roll out at halftime, and and the cute little puppy running down the giant horses for the Budweiser commercial, you know, and he's, the pu- puppies and giant horses in love. Puppies and giant horses, and, and some really clever advertising, but the great majority of it is driven by sex. And so, you know, we're at the place now where we, uh, our neighbors pre-record the game, and then we we start watching an hour later so that we can forward through all the advertisements because we just don't even want. I don't want to see them. We don't want the kids to see them, and because it's just so much about this issue. And then those messages that we're constantly bombarded with in our culture, they start to put pressure on us as Christ followers, whether we want them to or not. And and so we, we just it's good for us to stop and just say, what is sex and who is it for and what are its purposes? And so um, of this topic today, the God's word, and, and, and as we follow Jesus, it cannot be any more countercultural on this issue than it is. And the truth of the scripture stand in really stark, and diametric opposition to the lies of the world. And as those who call themselves Christ followers, I think um, we have a responsibility to come to the point of decision on topics like this about what we believe and also why we believe it. Because as you live that out, as people uh, in your workplace and in your your normal day-to-day are going to talk about their sex lives and talk about their relationships, you have opportunity to interact around some of these topics in, I think, appropriate ways Uh, And to to model for people a very different perspective on these things. And so my plan actually today is not to pursue a clinical explanation of sex. Um, My assumption is that as Americans, uh, all of us over the age of 13, I think in the room, probably already have a working knowledge of of, of how that works, how sex works and the plumbing and all that. Uh, If I'm wrong and you need more information, uh, there is a flannel graph Somewhere on the property. See me later if we need to have the talk, right? Um, I've already had the all of our kids have had the talk, right? So we're good. Um, but let's start instead with a theology of sex. A theology of sex, you know, that, that, that even doesn't seem to fit. It just sounds weird. We're going to talk about a theology of sex. Do those things even go together? The answer is yes, because um, God made it. And, and so, therefore, it's good by definition, because God made it, right? God doesn't make bad things, but the predominant message we hear growing up, if you grew up in the, uh, the, the traditional morals or in church, the unintended message that we get growing up is that somehow sex is bad. And it's not. It's actually really good. But, but when you get to be 17 or 18 and you've only heard it's bad, stay away, don't touch, you know, it, it, it messes up your honeymoon. I mean, right, I, I, I just had this fear the first three nights that my father-in-law was going to kick the door down and have a shotgun in it, and, and I was just like, it, it, it made things a little dicey, right? And so the, the reason for that message that is somehow it's bad is that we've let the culture frame the issue and frame the debate and the discussion, and so we end up addressing sex as an issue divorced from, and I use that intentionally, divorced from its actual proper context we just talk about sex, but God didn't intend sex to be this standalone thing. He intended for it to be part of a package and he, and he gets, he gets to set the parameters and the context for what he's created for us to enjoy. And so we can't just have sex as its own standalone thing. We've got to, we've got to do what we did was is build a theology of marriage and covenant and love and all these things. Right? So, so when we talk about a theology of sex, we're talking about a covenantal context. And if you were here for the talk on marriage being covenant, um, I, don't, I don't know if we went to the Hebrews thirteen four, 4, but uh, the verse says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And maybe you've noticed along the way in redemptive history that all the covenants, they all have signs, Right. Did you know every covenant has a sign? So let's just do a little pop quiz, Sunday school pop quiz. I'll name a covenant. You name a sign. Noahic. Rainbow. Good. Uh, Abrahamic. Circumcision. Yeah. Again, flannel graph for anybody who's not up to speed on that. Um, Davidic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There'll be a, there, there'll be a, it's, it hasn't had its fulfillment yet, but there's the the Davidic covenant, Jesus really ultimately some other things. The actually theologians, that's a really terrible one because theologians disagree a little bit on that. Um, new covenant, baptism. Yeah. Marriage covenant sex. Yeah. It's the sign of the covenant, right? So, Here's what we do. We, we, kind of, we kind of make sex the reward for getting married. Like it's, it, it's not. It's not a reward for getting married. Marriage should never be pursued simply as the means by which to have legal guilt-free sex. Though I know most guys in their early 20s are thinking that way. Like that, my life versus First Corinthians 7 is like, better to marry than to burn with passion. And I am burning with passion. I got to find her right now so that I can just ha- we can be legal about this, right? We can be right before God. And that's a terrible motive to get married, right? Sex as a reward for getting married is like saying there's a reward for becoming a Christian. That's just silly. That's just silly. To engage. So so let's take that a step further, okay? Because every covenant has a sign. So to engage in premarital sex or sex outside of the confines of God-defined marriage is kind of like going around and just randomly throwing yourself into every pool and lake you come to and shouting in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't do that going around like, I'm just going to randomly baptize myself, every body of water that I see. What, what are you doing? That's, that's a very particular thing that's tied to this covenant relationship that signifies this covenant relationship. And yet we, we disengage sex from covenant relationship, and then we think it, we, we can just use it however we want. And it, it's really silly. It doesn't make any sense. So to engage in sex with one's spouse before God is actually, uh, so, so the flip side of this is that's actually to call God as a witness in that moment to an act of worship within a sacred covenant. Uh, so I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but it's actually a form of worship. And it honors the Lord when it's when it's happening within the boundaries of what he's established. So in that way, uh, maybe we could actually say that sex in in that sense, and I don't like the word sacrament because it has a lot of baggage. Uh, it's not strong enough. It's not an ordinance because we don't like, we had communion last week and then this week is go home and have sex with your spouse right this, we don't, so it's not it's not an ordinance it, it, it functions in some ways more like a sacrament, but it 's not something that the church is responsible for this is your marriage right but but sacrament is a word that we use in church for a thing that we do as god 's people that happens in the physical realm in which we live, but that has spiritual significance and I think that in that way um, th- this this relates to the topic of sex because uh, the two sacraments that the church employs or ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? And so sex is different in the sense that only to be witnessed between a husband and wife, but it's still something that happens in the physical that has a very spiritual significance, right? And that's why Paul will go on in Ephesians 5 to say the union of two married people is a picture of Christ in the church because there's some really deep theological stuff happening. And just as an aside, as a side note here, Um, This is why uh, it doesn't matter how much lifetime TV you watch. You've never seen God honoring sex. You've never seen it because it doesn't let itself be seen. That's what Hebrews says is let the marriage bed be undefiled. The minute a third party is watching anything go down in that context, it's no longer God honoring. And what does then um, God's God honoring sex doesn't let itself be witnessed by anyone other than the husband, the wife, and God. So voyeur at the window you watching movie HBO after 8 p.m. none of that doesn't matter how tastefully the scene was edited doesn't matter it does not honor God because there's a third party involved which also works the other way when couples bring pornography into their bedroom that's a third party right so so we've got to guard the marriage bed let's talk about sex's Spiritual dimension. There's a spiritual dimension. that The culture's view is that sex is a physical act. And if you're a product of the public school system like I am and my wife is, you've received messages about who and what you are that are actually really diametrically opposed and contrary to what God says about us as humans. The world would say, You're just an animal. And God's word says, No, you're a particular special creation made in my image. Now, that's not to say that every teacher that you had coming up in public school was evil, right? Uh, some some willing pawn and some great conspiracy to corrupt your life. The contrary, um, there are many godly teachers in the public system, but their hands are actually tied, right? There's so little that they can do. What I'm saying is that there's a world system. Paul in the one would call it the cosmos. And and he says that and that world system is run by Satan and it's deliberately set up to lead people away from the knowledge of the one true and living God. And so what happens is we end up in this confusion about these issues because this whole system that we live in is is meant to lead us astray, right? And so Paul would would say it this way. Look at Colossians 2.8 if you've got your Bibles. Of course, by the time you get to Colossians 2.8, I'll finish the verse. So I should should probably have put it on the screen. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive, by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. There's nothing wrong with philosophy rooted in a Christian worldview that understands creation and God. He says, don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. See, the world just says you're another animal, more highly evolved to be sure, but just an animal. And, then, and so then the question is asked, well, then are animals bound by some sense of morality when it comes to sex? Of course not. Of course not. I mean, monkeys, there's a particular species of monkeys, they fling their poo at each other. There's no morality there. There's no decorum there. This, this is just go for it, right? And, and so then the, the logic goes, the argument goes, well, then neither are we. Some sense of morality, right? And, and, and for a kid coming up in that system, that's, that's a, well, okay, wow. I was feeling a sense of guilt about this, and now suddenly I don't have to. Thank you for freeing me from my conscience. I'm I'm ready to go. Let's go. And and, and the other message that's put forward, I think in our culture, is by um, guys like if you've ever read Richard Dawkins, he's an angry little British atheist guy, and uh, he he says you're just dancing to your DNA. You're hardwired to do do whatever you do, and you can't control it. You don't have any choice. And so no, now you're no longer at the level of an animal. Now you're at the level of a biological machine in a determinist universe where you don't even make the choices that you think you make. Simply doing what your genetics have predisposed you to do. In either case, sex is dumbed down to simply a physical act between two entities. But Scripture says that sex is so much more... Uh, Scripture says that you are the imago dei, you are made in the image of God, and you have great worth and dignity as God's image. And as a Christian now, now you're doubly his, you're twice purchased, because he made you, he owned you to begin with, and then he bought you back with the blood of Jesus. So as beings made in his image, we have spirits as a non-material part of who we are that was made to commune with the living God that Jesus is totally dead and now because of the Spirit in us is completely alive. And so, God designed sex not only to incorporate the physical and emotional components of our beings, but also the spiritual part of who we are. Or, or, or 1 Corinthians 6 would say it this way, verses 12 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Paul's quoting a very uh, common saying in the Corinthian culture. They were very fond of this expression. All things are lawful for me. Everything's everything's lawful, especially in the church. I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's that's a predominant view, right? Uh, I've got I've got fire insurance, so I can live like hell. Uh, except that that's foreign to the scriptures. So this was a very so. So the Corinthians were having this mindset. So Paul addresses this. He quotes them to them, and he says, "All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful." All things are lawful for me. Yeah, but I'm not going to be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Yes, but God's going to destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are Christ? And when Paul Paul asks a rhetorical question like that, the expectation is that the answer should be, yeah, we know that. He's dismayed. He's a little frustrated that they are not remembering this really basic truth that they should know, right? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, one flesh with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, Genesis 2. Huh. But he who is joined to the Lord, Spirit with him, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pay pay close attention to the argument here. See, Paul is saying that your spirit is alive in Christ and is joined to Christ because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So, so we, in, in the same way that the two become one flesh, husband and wife, it's a picture of, you know, God took an Adam, a, a rib out of Adam to make Eve's joining. And then in the union of marriage, basically putting it back together, right? They're back together, one flesh. And in the same way, the church and, and Christ are one together. And, and so Paul argues that if you then have sex with a prostitute, Paul is saying you're joining Christ who lives in you via his spirit with that prostitute spirit. That is, to, that is to say, when you have sex, there's a spiritual component. God designed this with a spiritual component, not just a physical reality, right? And when you have sex with someone, your spirits are joined together. You're made one flesh, to borrow from Genesis, in a way that, quite honestly, is really difficult to explain. I, I don't know that I relate all the ways that that works, right? So this is a big deal. And so some of you who are married. I'll just tell you a little bit about my, my background. With, um, prior to Jen, I was engaged to another girl in college. And we were together. And, and for the first couple of years of marriage, it was a difficult thing for me because I had given myself to someone who was not my wife. And, and that struggle, that you, you don't understand as a, as a single uh, 20-something, like how much damage you're actually doing and how much baggage you're, you're bringing now into your marriage because of the choices that you made as a single person. I praise God that there's forgiveness for sin. And I praise God that there's grace when we go after him and follow him. Uh, that, though we never are able to fully undo what we've done, there are still repercussions. There are still ways that plays out. There's, there's healing and there's redemption, right? And there's grace. But, but every other sin, Paul says, that you can commit is outside of yourself. But sexual sin is something you, you commit against your own body. That's a very different category. That's, that's a different thing. And yet we see all around us all the time people just, the deviancy and, and the, the call to sinfulness, and people have no idea what it is that they're actually doing. It's sad. It's really sad, actually, to see people in our culture go headlong into this. But as we talk about the physical reality of spiritual reality of sex, here's another reality is that sex sells and it's all around us all the time. You think about somebody that starts just, just a little bit of drug use, you know, a little bit of pot and then a little bit more and then a little bit of that's not getting it done anymore. And then they move on to the next thing. And, and after a while they're hooked on heroin and and, and and you need more, you need harder drugs to get high. And sex really works the same way. It has the same effect on the human brain and the dopamine release and, and it triggers our uh, addictive part of our brain. And, and, and so especially outside of marriage or outside of the confines of, God's covenant design, it's not enough after a while. It's not enough. And so the pursuit of pornography, and after a while, that's not enough. And so we're looking for darker pornography and other things, and guys get into sex trafficking. It's just crazy where it takes the human soul in a pursuit of pleasure. It means that we're We're bored. It means that we've gotten bored with the world that God made, and somehow we think that it's up to us to pursue pleasure and to entertain ourselves because God is not enough for us. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I was really surprised that Lady Gaga's doing the halftime show. I thought she was kind of old hat, right? Um, but when, when we as a culture are at a place where we start to ignore Lady Gaga, that says a lot about how saturated we are sexually, right? It's like, yeah, whatever, Lady Gaga. Like, that says a ton about us. Um, so like like a drug, sex in its basic form no longer excites us. We're driven to new levels of deviancy and indecency as a culture because it's just not enough. It's just not enough. And also a byproduct of all this is just the immodesty that we see all around us, which is why, you know, I, I'm working with young adults and 20-somethings for so long. Modesty is such a big discussion. It's such a big issue because without even realizing it, we accept as normal from the culture that which is not honoring to God. Now, I'm not advocates, right? Um, stay with me. I'm just calling us to reject the world's standards and embrace God's standards. And God's word counsels us to guard one another sexually. And it rem- reminds us that, well, while we have the freedom in Christ to do certain things, there are other things uh, that while permissible for us as Christians, they're not beneficial to us or to the people around us. And we have to begin to learn to think that way uh, unselfishly. This is the problem at Corinth, right, in chapter 6. Hey, everything's lawful. I'm forgiven in Jesus. I can do whatever I want. Paul's saying, yeah, but you're not thinking about the relationship that you have with the people around you. And you may be, you may be on solid ground to say, yeah, not necessarily a bad thing for me, but you're not really considering the people around you at all. Right? So, how we dress is one of those things. How we present ourselves. Ladies, you need to know that guys are more visually oriented as a rule. And uh, if I could just give you, ladies, man glasses to see with your eyes what we see every day, your mind would be blown. Your mind would be blown. It would take about five minutes with the man glasses for you to get it, and then you would be appalled for the rest of your life at how men see the world. Is totally different. It's totally different. So, so when ladies dress in a way so as to accentuate parts of their bodies so that guys will notice, it works. We notice, we see it. And and, and to our detriment and to your abuse. At a practical level, see, the message from the culture is that you're not attractive unless you're dressing that way. But let me just say to you, as your friend and pastor and brother, that's not true. Uh, Modesty can be really attractive. Um. uh, What is the phrase? It's a homeschool thing. Um, Modest is hottest. Thank you. I knew that somebody would know it, which is not a universal truth. Um, the floor length skirt, denim skirt, not not always um, hottest. But (laughs) let me just say, in summertime, it's hottest because it's made out of burlap. But that's not really what we're. that's not what we're talking on, all right? Guys, we have a responsibility to guard our eyes and to guard our hearts and to respond in the spirit when conviction enters in, when we're in those moments. Um, you got to learn to bounce your eyes, right? We're, we're, uh, visual acuity is a thing with, with us. And so we're being, I'll be in a coffee shop and I'm having a conversation with Shrock, who's um, not drinking coffee because I'm sure he's allergic to it. Um, he's having a cup of sunshine. And... Um, and then the door opens, and a very attractive woman looks in. Now I see motion, and I look. That's not a problem. And I'm back to the conversation with Shrock. It's that second. It's going back to check her out. Right? It's, guys, we've got to guard our hearts. We've got to guard our eyes. Uh, we have to, we have to respond in the spirit when conviction enters in and our flesh desires to lust. We have to respond to that. There's nobody else that can do it for us. Ladies, you have a responsibility to dress modestly and to guard your brothers. Guys, um, young guys, number tank tops. I don't want to see your armpit here. That's just, that's just an aside. That's just for me. That nothing to do with what I just thought, man, while we're talking about how we dress, let me just say, um, file that away as extra. Postmarital sex versus premarital expectations and feelings. This is another part of the malaise and the confusion in our culture. Proverbs is really abundantly clear on this issue. I just want to read you an excerpt from Proverbs 5. Uh, Very practical on this. Uh, Solomon, in this part of Proverbs, is the author, and he says, um, which is ironic, (laughs) he's going to say, drink well from your own cistern, but he had about 3,000 cisterns. So, um. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to take him seriously, uh, and so we go. Okay, but that was the Holy Spirit through Solomon sovereignly. So Proverbs five fifteen: Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of in the streets, let them be for you and for you alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Ah, oh, now we know what he's talking about. He just. He just made the analogy plain. Fountain, wife of your youth. She's a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Now, this is one of those places, verse 20, where I like the KJV because it says strange with a strange woman. That's just a fun phrase. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the strange woman, the forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are, are always before the eyes of the Lord. There's his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. and What is it with all the water and the wells and the cisterns? This is the fountain and the... Um, being able to go to a place that is yours and yours alone to get clean water in a culture like first century. uh, well, Well, let's go back to Solomon's time. I mean, that's a big deal, right? To be able to get clean water and to have a source, a regular source of clean water is huge. And so this idea that I can go anytime I want to this source of satisfaction and romance and have that is a big deal. Don't Take that lightly. Don't forsake that. Don't, as he says, go, first of all, don't let just let that be a thing out there in the streets for everybody else. That's not for other people. That's for you and you alone in, in the confines of marriage. So so fight for purity. Fight for fidelity. Also, the, 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 the spiritual dimension of this, the same language that the prophets used to describe Israel going after other gods, God will use adultery and idolatry almost interchangeably because that marriage covenant, the picture of the relationship with God's people and God always, right? So adultery and the way that our culture does dating is really, I think, dress rehearsal for divorce, right? We talked about this several weeks ago because it's always like I'm ready to trade up on the next better thing that might come along. I'm ready to ditch this girl to get with that girl and I'm always putting my best version of me forward so that they don't see who I really am so that I can get them to like me. And it's just this terrible, terrible model of, of how we approach relationship. Um, the feelings and expectations that uh, you, you have now as a single person, if you're in the room single person, or that you had, and when married people are remembering back now going, oh, yeah, I kind of remember what it was like to date. Gosh, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore, right? Um, the, the, the expectations that you single people about marriage, they're not accurate, and they're not realistic. And I can just say that to you with all confidence because mine weren't. And Scripture says, like young single people just don't, they don't. There's a lot that they don't understand. You you won't know it until you're in it, right? Um, some of the expectations you guys have are going to be far and surpassed in terms of joy and pleasure and intimacy by something that you cannot conceptualize right now. And some of the expectations you have are going to go unmet and be very disappointing because they're unrealistic. So the, the, the problem is our feelings and our expectations are usually unrealistic because they're grounded in the, the culture and the media and how they portray these things, which is always, I mean, you watch a 30-minute show, it's got to be wrapped up in 30 minutes, right? they got to have closure. And so our expectation in marriage is, well, I just had a fight with my wife. Well, man, that was 40 minutes ago. We should have been over this. No, don't let media set your level of expectation for reality. Right? Um, there's this whole whole thing called the honeymoon stage, which is great. Uh, it starts on your honeymoon, it should, and then it goes for a little while, right? And 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 and, and so you're thinking, man, it's going to be a wild romp every night. It might be for a little while, and then you got to pay some bills and balance your and wipe some bottoms if God is gracious to you and. Get up in the middle of the night to feed a baby and deal with some stuff, right? And, and so sex can still be fantastic, but suddenly you find out, I've got to work at my marriage. I've got to put effort into my relationship with my spouse, and that's something that our culture knows very little about. So the message you're going to get from the media and the culture is a very wrong message. And so we, we, we just, we're geared in such a way in our sin nature that we just want pleasure to come freely and easily without any restraint at our every whim, I just want it. I want pleasure right now. And, and this is one of the fundament, fundamental reasons why I think marriages fail day, because we've lost sight of the fact that love calls us to service and sacrifice for the sake of the other person. So what we end up with here as we, as we move towards the end is um, what I'm calling selfish sex. Uh, the calling in marriage is sacrifice. Remember back to our definition of love. Love is a choice to sacrifice. And so 99 out of 100 people enter into marriage thinking about sex in terms of their needs and their desires being met by the other person. Th- that, that's always going to end in disaster every time. Because if both people come in with that level of expectation about the other person being their functional Jesus, you're setting each other up for failure. God's design is for us to enter into the marriage bed with a primary focus being on pleasing our mate, pleasing our spouse. And that requires sacrifice guys, especially for us, right? Cause here's the kicker. The fear is if I, if I work too hard to please my spouse, I might not be pleased. I, my, my desires might go unfulfilled. Can I just say to the guys in the room, listen, those who are called to lead and sacrifice and love and take responsibility gladly if you work and make an effort to to please your wife, it's to your advantage. It's to your advantage. That's gonna. That's an investment that's gonna come back around to you very quickly, and you're gonna you're gonna see very quickly that that's a move, right? But we get this forbidden fruit syndrome, um, and that, again, back to that premarital sexual contact. And everything prior to marriage that we explore wrongly and sinfully to whatever degree, there's an element of excitement to it because it's forbidden. We know that it's wrong. Our consciences are telling us this is not good and our parents are saying and our pastor is saying and and hopefully your friends, probably, maybe not, I don't know, somebody's saying that's not good, you shouldn't do that. And so the forbiddenness of that is actually an element of excitement that's added to it. And it's altogether too common for singles to confuse those feelings of excitement based on doing something their conscience says is wrong, what sex should feel like all the time. And so then you get into a marriage and you, and you, and you seek to honor God and you, you, you marry a spouse and you settle down and then it's not the same. And you're like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our relationship? Well, you've cultivated that forbidden fruit syndrome. And so we have, to, we have to back away from that. We have to back away and say, God, how did you design this? What did you want this to be? And then he tells us really clearly as we kind of wrap up this afternoon in Proverbs 7 that sex is God's analogy. So if we think about it from his perspective in Proverbs 7 and we try to see it that way in relationship to ourselves and to our future spouse, it's going to help us. And I'll just, read, I'll just read these verses to you as we wrap up. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight, your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, the strange woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked through my lattice. I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths a young man who lacked. He was passing along the street near her corner. He strayed too close, right? He was taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, by the way, your parents are say, nothing ever good happens after 10 p.m. Okay. Okay. There it is. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's dolled up. She looks great. She's, she's she's trying to seduce. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, on every corner, she lies in wait. And she seizes him. She's aggressive. And she kisses him. And with bold face, she says, I had to offer sacrifices today, and I paid my vows. Guess what? She's a church girl. She's religious. I've been to sacrifice today. I've been to the temple today. doesn't mean a thing. doesn't necessarily mean a thing. And now I've come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. I've been looking everywhere for you. I spread out my couch with coverings and covered linens from, from Egypt, and I perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's take our fill of love till morning. Let's delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a big bag of money with him. I mean, he's going to be gone. At full moon, he'll come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird rushes into a snare. He doesn't know that it's going to cost him his life. And so, my son, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths For many a victim she has laid low, and all of her slain are a mighty throng. You are not the first, and you will not be the last. Her house is the way to Sheol, to the place of the chambers of the dead. So then sex becomes the analogy for us. Idolatry and adultery. God uses those almost interchangeably. So everything that we have talked about to this point in this series, we could just take it and superimpose it into this reality. And when it comes to our relationship with the one true and living God, he's called us to fidelity. He's called us to faithfulness. He's called us to a level of engagement and intimacy. The only place we see anything close to that that we could go, oh, that's what he's talking about, is in a marriage covenant when a husband and wife are intimate. They'll say, that's the kind, that's the depth of connection that God wants with me as his follower, as a follower of Christ. That's crazy that the God of the universe would invite me into that place of intimacy. And that when I stray from that, when I go after other gods, when I go after my pleasures being met in a worldly way, outside of the confines of his design, I'm actually committing spiritual adultery with my, my God and my my one true husband, the bridegroom, Christ, the head of the church. That's a powerful reality. And the way he describes the strange woman here, she's seductive. Listen, folks, the, the culture we live in is a seductive place. It will entice us. It will. It, it's subtle. I mean, some of this is really right out there in the middle. It's right in your... It's not always like that. It's it's subtle, right? Strange women, dumb men, aggressive girls, clueless boys. That that would be a great... We're going to do a youth conference. We should do aggressive girls clues. Now, except... Sometimes it's the other way around, aggressive boys and clueless girls. So, But you see the call to modesty, right? You see the call to guard your eyes from lust. You see the call to fidelity and faithfulness, to shun the ways of the culture and directing us towards self-centered pleasure-seeking instead of self-sacrificing for the good of others. And, and so I just want to wrap us up with this is the heart and soul of the identity of our culture. Sex is the core of what our beliefs, they are. And we have this great message of salvation, and we have this countercultural message of, uh, yeah, my identity is not rooted in my sexuality. And it's this tremendous, uh, you think about teenagers in the room, if you ever have the compulsion to rebel, I I just want to tell you, go for it. Because if you're going to rebel against the culture that we live in right now, that means righteousness. So please feel free to rebel against the cultural norms of, of this world and, and walk in righteousness. You have my permission to do that. Um, there, there is, if there's any hope for the church to continue to move towards holiness, we have to understand and embrace this idea of human sexuality and marriage and all these things through the lens of God's word and design because this is the new apologetic this is the place where, where we intersect with culture in these discussions, not just in the public forum, in the public square, shouting at one another <laughs> across an open uh, area. This is the place where we intersect with the culture in our workplace, in, our, um, in the coffee shop, and everywhere, because it's totally in our face. It's always in our face. And so we need to understand this and embrace this. It's essential to our credibility as those who proclaim the gospel, that we not only understand this, but that we live it that we live it. And because when we, if we go off the path into sexual deviancy or into sexual sin, not not just like full-blown deviancy, but when we stray into sexual sin, we're losing ground in the Holy Spirit. Holiness is power. So just close with this. I'm going to pray for us. Holiness is power. When we walk in purity, when we walk in holiness, the Spirit is powerful through us when we give ourselves over to sin, when we stray from God, we walk in weakness. We don't have the power of the Spirit. Now, we don't lose our salvation. We're not losing the Holy Spirit. You can grieve Him. You can quench Him. And so God calls us to purity, calls us to holiness, if we're going to be those who proclaim the gospel. And I pray that, Father, I ask that you just give us the grace today, to take a deep breath as we think about all these realities, think about all these truths, and then we step back and say, oh, yeah, and I've got this coworker, or, yeah, I've got this person in my class, or uh, somebody in my life who is so wayward, and I see now clearly because I see what your word says. I see truth, and I see their deviancy. I see truth, and I see their sin. I see truth, and I see my own sin, and I need grace today. And I need your spirit to fill me today so that I can be one who proclaims the message of hope of the gospel of that person. Lord, give us strength and vision and direction in that, that we wouldn't just take these truths home and say, oh, that was a great sermon. I'm so glad that we agree about what sex is supposed to be and let it in there. But that you would move us beyond to the place of action and response to your spirit and that the gospel will go forward as a result, Lord. And that's our prayer today. Amen.